Dr. Patel. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Oh my God. So I came home late last night and then when I woke up, I saw I saw your post. I was like, wait, yeah. what what day is it today? Did I skip? I was did, did I skip a day? You know what? I, I am clearly I am just a mess right now. No, it's okay. I saw that you blow dried your hair already, so I was like, I, you, you know have what? to do it. <laughs> I was like, I we'll do it today. Football too. So, yeah. I mean, we're really, we're ready. <laughs> I know. We are ready. We are ready today. Anyways, Dr. Patel, if you could please introduce yourself to everybody. And thank you so much again for agreeing to do this. Well, thank you for having me. I think it's right. so amazing that you're doing this. And, you know, I'm honored to be with such a huge right. star. Like, no, no, no. Not huge at all. <laughs> So I'm Anita Patel. I am double board certified pediatrician and pediatric critical care doctor. I work at Children's National, which is one of the top five children's hospitals in the country. And it's an enormous pediatric ICU, which is great. I'm also an assistant professor and an NIH funded researcher. So I do a lot of research too. That's amazing. Have my hands in lots of different things. And I'm an ins- I'm on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That's amazing, and that's why I'm so grateful that you said yes to our live today. So I started this live stream, I think, back in February, in response to like so much misinformation going on around. Right. So I, you know, we worked through the whole pandemic last year when the spike happened here in New York City for COVID nineteen, and I think the thought started when after such a rough shift and I believe that we had like seven patients die that night oh. and when I left the hospital outside the hospital there was a protest saying that oh, oh COVID is all a hoax I was like this is not right and um, even when the vaccines were rolled out right so much misinformation mm-hmm. all throughout social media especially so I was like why don't we bring in the actual experts to talk about these topics the ones who are actually educated and trained in these topics and that's how I got to meet physicians like yourself and so thank you so much and one of the questions they always ask my guests here yeah. uh, what led you into medicine was it like a family member a friend a personal experience it was, I mean it was oddly personal experience so prior to me being a doctor there were no doctors in my immediate family my dad mm-hmm. didn't have a PhD but mm-hmm. is a medical doctor mm-hmm. I have a lot of cousins in India actually and mm-hmm. I have one other cousin who ended up becoming a doctor as well but mm-hmm. we have lots of PhDs in our family, but me and my cousin are the first MDs. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, I'm one of those weirdos that truly, truly, I've wanted to be a doctor since before I can even remember. Mm -hmm. I will say I've always loved science and math. Like that's Mm -hmm. always been sort of Mm -hmm. my strength. And I think it's natural to like what you're sort of naturally good at, I guess. I just loved my pediatrician so much. Like I used to put on my fake pearls and when Uh I tiny little girl and I'd like dress up and I'd go and I mean I hated shots back then but I I just loved my pediatrician I loved how good he was with kids Mm -hmm. and I just thought it was so cool that he could like learn about my body Mm -hmm. without being inside my body little kid brain I was like doing this and so I was just very laser focused on being Mm -hmm. a doctor from a super young age to the point Mm -hmm. where even my Indian parents, and you'd appreciate this because you yeah. have parents, even they yeah. were like, you know, you can be whatever you want. Yeah. 
yeah. which is crazy yeah. coming from <laughs> parents, but, and I'm an only child too. Yeah. They just were like, you know, we, we want you to be happy. And I, so I actually self, I didn't take any science classes my first semester of college. I went to mm. UPenn and I took several mm. Wharton classes. My dad was like, why don't you take some Wharton classes? <laughs> you know, <laughs> see how it is. <laughs> and I, I didn't take any science classes and I was absolutely miserable. I had the worst GPA, mm-hmm. like something mm-hmm. crazy, no, just not yeah. something. Yeah. I mean, to the point where I'm, I'll never forget this. When I showed my parents my first <laughs> court card, they weren't even mad. They were just like, are you okay? <laughs> like, what's going on? And then I like added my science classes back and I pulled it up and it was fine. Um, it's amazing. But that's my path. And I've always, I'm like, as you'll probably tell from our talk, I'm talking mm-hmm. to person. I like being around yeah. Yeah. so it just melded all my passions together and you know I want to yeah. help people like I needed yeah. a job where I, yeah. I wanted to go to work every day mm-hmm. and I was making a difference in some yeah. way so yeah. there's really people who are really inclined into the science right and the maths but still the whole journey getting to where you are now or even to medical school and or even internship is such a rough road right you spend all this time studying applying even for residency and then also all the stress and the money involved as well. What I love asking my physician guests are, at the end of it all, given all of the time and the stress involved, there were a lot of sacrifices for sure, right? Especially in medical school, <laughs> always studying, can't go to certain family events or whatnot. Do you have any regrets at the end of the road? The only regret I have, and it's not even... No, I don't have regrets. I do wish I had taken care of myself better. And that's not something I did, honestly, until my second year of fellowship. Mm. When I really hit a super low point, I did my fellowship at Columbia. And it was, I mean, wonderful training, Mm -hmm. but super, 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 super intense. You know, we were on call every fourth night, Mm -hmm. our first year, basically all year, Mm -hmm. except for a vacation month. So it was it was really tough. Honestly, I got so low that year that I was like, I'm not totally sure. And it was the first time in my entire career, even undergrad med school Mm -hmm. that I was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this Mm -hmm. and maintain my sanity. And I was really lucky at the time. I happened to be dating someone that was really into yoga. And he's long gone, but the yoga stayed. (laughs) (laughs) And I truly, like, after a couple years, and I was always, like, a runner. And Mm -hmm. I liked to Mm -hmm. kick back, you know, like, really physical stuff. But yoga was, like, not whatever. But um, I had my first yoga class, and it was a Bikram class, actually. And I was like, wow, this is a real workout. And I also just felt my stress melt away. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I couldn't even touch my knees. I was so inflexible. But I, like, literally, I, three or four classes in, signed up for yoga teacher training in the uh, middle of my PICU fellowship. That's and, I mean, the rest is history. It changed mm-hmm. my life. It, you know, for the first time... I had something outside of medicine that I loved just as much. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think it goes back to what I told you. Like, I have been so laser focused to mm-hmm. be a doctor my entire mm-hmm. life. Like, I loved med school. Like, I know that sounds weird, mm-hmm. but I truly felt like I had arrived and I knew yeah. I was 
place. You know, I was like, this is everything I ever wanted. And even if I was studying until 4am every night, I was like, I just love it. And same for residency. I mean, my co-residents used to joke, like, after every rotation, I'd be like, I'm gonna be this, you know, I'm gonna be that. All right, all right, you know, but that's just how I always loved it so much that that being my only focus was fine for me. But as I got older, it wasn't, you know, and uh, I I mean, and I say it like, I I don't like to say regrets, because I think things come to you when you need them. Mm -hmm. And yoga came to me when I needed it. And it changed the course of my life. And, you know, I'm still an avid yogi. And I I put at my job. And yeah. I have a more rounded life now. Yeah. yeah. It's very interesting because this is my 20th episode and every doctor that I've asked that question, they all have the same answer. It's like, there's no regret. Yeah. There is no regret, which is very hopeful for people like us, right? Who are either in the pre-health or already medical students or those in the residency. I had the residents come on and I say, you're in the middle of that 100 hour work week. Do you feel like giving up right now? Uh-huh. And I think, it's always that laser focus that they talk about and they feel like something that they look forward to in the end. So what would be your number one advice for a student who wants to go down this road of medicine? My biggest piece of advice, honestly, is to make sure that you want to be a doctor Mm. and make sure that you love it. And I say that because I did have friends in med school for the first year or two were like, don't really like this, you know, and and they made it work for them. They finished Mm -hmm. med school, they got other degrees like MBAs, and they ended up doing mostly non, they did, they're doing non But I do think it's a shame to like, as you said, it's so expensive and expensive. It it takes, you know, you, you have okay as you said mm-hmm. I missed almost like except for in my first in my first year of med school a bunch of people got married and after that like mm-hmm. I didn't make any weddings at, like yeah. I feel like for those years you know and you just had to be okay with that and yeah. you know if, if you love it and it's like in like you have to and it sounds so hokey but like you have to feel it and then I guess the second piece of advice I would give to people is you know don't go into medicine if you want to make money like yeah. <laughs> other ways to make a lot of money yeah. um, instantly as well right yeah. it's and a long time don't, so I'm not saying yeah. you don't make money at the end yeah. and it's very stable job obviously like you're you have good job security but it's not like I could make way more money if I was a business person you know like I decided not to go into private practice I decided to Mm -hmm. academics so Mm -hmm. I have pay cut there too so you know you just have to make sure you really Mm -hmm. love it because if you're doing it for prestige and or money you'll Mm -hmm. be really disappointed I know, for sure, for sure. I always tell this to other students as well. It's like, it's not just the debt that you take out, that debt accrues interest over time. And it's not even just about the money as well. It's literally the time involved, right? It's it's an emotionally and physically telling road, even pre-med itself. And I can imagine medical school itself as well and the residency for sure. I have friends who are residents and each time I see them in progressive weeks, I feel like <laughs> their soul is being <laughs> sucked out of them um, progressively <laughs> as, yeah. as I see them. It's tough. I mean, it's, yeah. and, you know, I because I was so laser focused on my career, yeah. I definitely dated people for sure but you know 
I didn't get married until a couple of years after becoming an attending, obviously mm-hmm. I had a daughter, you know, mm-hmm. so I did really, I, ha- I ended up doing everything later in life, you yeah. know, I got married at 36 and I, mm-hmm. I had my daughter at 38, you know, mm-hmm. so. The thing is, though, I'm 100% happy with sort of the timing of everything. But I tell you, when I was in the middle of fellowship, I was like, oh, my gosh, like I haven't, I almost felt like in one aspect of my life, like so set, like, but my personal life, I honestly, there were moments where I was like, I just might not get married and have a family like I wanted. And I had to like start to work through that and be okay with it you know obviously everything worked out is it good but yeah I mean that sort of goes back to better make sure you're okay like and I I'm okay that I made those sacrifices yeah love my job and I love my career and but if I didn't I'd be miserable yeah like this job it like (laughs) (laughs) work business yeah (laughs) amazing Uh, thank you doc I wanted to delve into pediatrics. Yeah. Was it your experience with your pediatrician as a child that stuck with you the whole time? Or was it like during rotations and clerkship? It was definitely during rotations. So mm-hmm. I I have like a kind of funny story about how I ended up in pediatrics. So I will say this. I knew I wanted to work, wanted to be a pediatric surgeon. Like I, that's what I thought I was going to I didn't know, but I, I thought I, I've always worked at summer camps, baby mm-hmm. I've always just been around kids. So it's, you know, I, I thought that I wanted to work with kids. I just didn't mm-hmm. think I wanted to be a pediatrician. So because of that, I actually scheduled my pediatric rotation first. And I, if you'll see this when you get to med school, but you can sort of decide in your third year or second year, which whenever you start rotations, like sort of what order you want your clerkships to be. And most people put the one that they want to do like fourth mm-hmm. or fifth mm-hmm. so that like mm-hmm. they've already gotten the lay of the land they know how to present so when they get to their sort of core rotation they're set up so I scheduled surgery fourth because I was like I want to be a surgeon mm-hmm. and I scheduled peds first because mm-hmm. I was like I want to be the really nice people when I'm fumbling around yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> I was like I'm not going to be a pediatrician yeah. so let me do it first yeah. And like two days into the rotation, they're like, you realize you're going to be a pediatrician. And yeah. I was like, guys, no, I'll probably be surgeon. Yeah. I love, I loved it. I like yeah. absolutely loved, loved the patients. I loved the people. They were, mm-hmm. they were people, you know, mm-hmm. nice and yeah. kind and, yeah. but like so smart, you know, mm-hmm. And then when I did my surgery rotation, I loved it as well. I really mm-hmm. did. So then I was like, all right, well, I love them both. So let me do ped surgery. So I did several ped surgery, sub-eyes and rotations. Mm-hmm. And I really loved it. However, and this is where like I always kind of, I, I have, I love my job. So I, I know it worked out for the best. But I went to UVA for med school. And at the time, there were only male and only actually, now that I come to think of it, like the senior residents and fellows were all men too. Mm-hmm. And like my mentor at the time sat down with me and he's like, look, if you want to do this, I will write you a glowing recommendation. He's like, but I just need to tell you this. If you like anything else, just as much as this, He's like, mm-hmm. I recommend you go into that. He's like, because it's going to be really difficult for you to mm-hmm. have a family. And honestly, I would never give that advice today because yeah. I've seen many yeah. 
adult pediatric surgeons that yes. have kids, mm-hmm. they have a life. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that was good advice. Mm-hmm. However, I think it was the right advice for me at the time because it got to where I am, right? Yeah. So, and I, I, I took it to heart and I was like, honestly, I like pediatrics just as much. I know mm-hmm. I, I don't want to do general pediatrics, mm-hmm. so not, not, mm-hmm. not in my wheelhouse, but I was like, I'll do a subspecialty. Um, mm-hmm. And so then I did the NICU sub-I. I loved the, mm-hmm. the neonatal ICU. Mm-hmm. So like I can, I'll, I was like, I'll do pediatrics and do one of the ICU fellows. So that's, I know a long-winded answer, but it, it just, I, I like to tell this story though, because, mm-hmm. you know, my niece, it's funny. I'm, I don't know if she's going to watch this, but she wants to be a doctor and she's mm-hmm. absolutely sure she wants to be a trauma surgeon. And I tell her, I was like, you know what, if you want to be a trauma surgeon, you can absolutely. Yeah. But I was like, I want you to keep your eyes open yeah. you know, because I think if you decide early what you want to do, mm-hmm. not open to anything else, you could yeah. be a specialty that you didn't even know you wanted yeah. to know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and all my friends have told me as well that you really do not know until you start rotations. Because yeah. I have a friend who wanted to be OBGYN, like, from the get-go. Yeah. And then now she's in emergency medicine. <laughs> so you, um, you really never know um, until, until you go through the rotations, I believe. And along with the topic of pediatrics well what a year it has been for the topic of pediatrics right and in relation to the whole pandemic i feel like every time i go through my feed on instagram and also your post as well dr patas like wow it's really such a divided issue right it's such a a divided issue that's complicated by so much misinformation and all this fake news and fake information from articles how does that affect you as a physician in that field seeing all of these <laughs> misinformation especially that you're on social media so well yeah it's been really hard mm-hmm. really really hard you know I've been you can probably see like I was kind of intermittently educating about COVID yeah. for a while up until yeah. the last month or so when I yeah. really, like went yeah. face first into yeah. it and I, I did that in in the beginning because I was like, you know, when COVID first hit, I did a lot. And then I kind of took a step back, actually had my baby. And then I was like, all right, I'll do COVID education once in a while. But like, it's just, I'm living it in the ICU every day. Yeah. So I wanted to like not make social media stressful. Yeah. What changed the game for me was an article written, I believe it was in the Washington Post by mm-hmm. people really smart mm-hmm. doctors. Mm-hmm. But they were smart adult doctors. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And and again, I want to emphasize that these are incredibly smart, well-respected mm-hmm. doctors. So I'm not knocking on them yeah. as yeah. physicians, yeah. but I disagree with what they wrote. And what they wrote was, we need to send our kids back to school without math. Mm-hmm. That article was a turning point for me because it was in the mainstream news. Yeah. It was Mm-hmm. And on just social media, yeah. mainstream news. I got so mad. I was screaming with a bunch of my pediatrician friends that are also yeah. on social media. Yeah. And one of them actually, Hina Talib, she's mm-hmm. T Health Doc. I don't know if you don't mm-hmm. follow her, she's great. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Look, you know, yeah, I'm mad too, but at the same time, us pediatricians have to also step up. Yeah. And yeah. that actually really stuck with me. And yeah. I was like, you know. I keep getting so pissed off whenever mm-hmm. I see 
healthcare adult doctors minimizing mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. But if I'm not actively speaking out myself, then mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really yeah. deserve, I don't have the right to be mad. Yeah. So, so that's why I started to speak up and now it's like basically all COVID all the time. Yeah. yeah. And particularly with the Delta variant, you know, yeah. it really changed the game. Just to answer your question, it was really honestly painful, physically painful and obviously emotional yeah. to take care of these kids in the ICU mm-hmm. and go to social media and have everyone say kids don't get COVID. And yeah. like, that was just stupid, right? Of course, yeah. kids get COVID. And, yeah. you know, I also always want to impress upon my followers that, like, yes, most kids are not getting super sick, which is so great, right? Mm-hmm. Like, God, most of them are not getting yeah. sick. Mm-hmm. But there are a cohort of them that are. And I just always want people to put themselves in the sh- Don't put yourself in my shoes. Put yourself mm-hmm. in the shoes of a parent. Yeah. As a kid mm-hmm. that got very sick from COVID, I have sadly seen kids die from COVID, not even mm-hmm. from accessory issues, but from COVID. And kids get tracheostomies from COVID. You know, I have mm-hmm. seen kids in mm-hmm. the ICU for months with COVID. And of course, I've seen mm-hmm. milder cases that the lucky ones, quote unquote, that just yeah. under the IPAP, you know, but. Yeah. Yeah. Still, I've been taking care of these kids. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine if you're a parent seeing the news every day saying that kids are fine, kids can do yeah. what they want, and yeah. your child is in the ICU because of yeah. that rhetoric. And yeah. you know, it particularly the the rhetoric of well, only kids with comorbidities yeah. with COVID. Or autoimmune disease. Yeah. I'm like, so that means that these kids with comorbidities don't matter then? Like, mm-hmm. just like we're talking about the elderly and the yeah, yeah. those yeah. kids are equally as important, if not more. They're, they're yeah. years and years of life ahead of them, you know? Yeah. So that's honestly, I mean, it was very painful, but it actually really helped me to start to be more vocal and really, yeah. you know, yeah, it's honestly, it's time consuming and at times stressful to like balance yeah. this yeah. and my job and obviously my family. Yeah. Thank God my husband is like super supportive, but. It was really, really, really freaking hard, but I, yeah. I will say it's gotten a lot easier. Yeah, I feel like I'm contributing and yeah. saying something. And yeah. if people choose to listen or not, that's their prerogative. Yeah. But at least I feel like I'm doing my part and not just mm. getting frustrated. You know. Yeah. So. yeah, I like what you said when when you posted that article from Washington Post. Actually, I think your caption was, "Why don't you let the pediatricians talk about the children?" Yeah, right, <laughs> which, which is so true. Because I, I first read the article, actually, from Washington Post, and I was looking at the authors, and I said, wait, none of these are pediatricians. <laughs> so what, and that was a big question that was sent in my DMs when I started promoting our live. Yeah. During this year, we heard the news of return to in-person education again for kids, right? Yes. Did you feel like it was time for kids to go back to school? Yes. I do. I absolutely do. So last year, I mean, here's some stats for you. So first of all, the amount of teen suicide mm-hmm. went up. I mean, there are figures anywhere from 20 to 40%. Mm-hmm. And that is largely because they were stuck at home, mm-hmm. anxious because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. isolated. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't have social support. A mm-hmm. lot of people don't have economic support, nutrition Mm -hmm. support, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
people get the kids get their food from school. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I, what I also want to say is that we're in a really different place in the pandemic now where in the beginning we had no idea mm-hmm. what mitigation strategies, yeah. what measures. Would yeah. Now, yeah. We know. it's not, yeah. like we don't know. We yeah. actually know. Yeah. So I do think it was time to go back to school, <laughs> but it's time to go back to school with the layered protection, yeah. like yeah. obviously all staff vaccinated, yeah. all kids masked, mm-hmm. good ventilation, fans on, windows open, HEPA filters. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. with all those measures in place, the risk of getting COVID is enormously low. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we see it. I'm not making yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Show that, right? Yeah. Like we saw in one article that with good like HEPA filtration ventilation mm-hmm. alone, not even mm-hmm. including masks, it imparted mm-hmm. a 44% risk reduction. Mm-hmm. You add universal masking and that's going to go to the high 90s. Yeah. So, you know, we're in a different place, but I, yeah. it's also very frustrating that we know how to protect the kids, but obviously yeah. a lot of schools, I think that's the yeah, problem, <laughs> yeah. is that kids need to go back to school, but they need yeah. people to go back to school safely. Mm-hmm with all these measures in place. So, you know, just to circle back to your question, yes, I firmly, staunchly believe, along Mm -hmm. with every pediatrician and the American Academy of Pediatrics, that our kids need to go back to school. Mm -hmm. However, we're telling people they need to go back to school safely. It's just heartbreaking. I I get hundreds of DMs every day from parents, like my school isn't, you know, following precautions. What do I do? And situation is so unique you know it's yeah. it, it's just taking a toll on everybody yeah yeah so like you said with you know safety measures back in place and i feel like at the forefront of that is the vaccination of the staff right especially yeah. for grades or vaccination for children are not yet approved so i was talking to some friends the other night and i thought that there is real-time hard evidence data we see between like the trend between the effectivity of the vaccines because the states with the higher vaccination rates have the lowest hospitalization rates but how about for grades and age groups for children where vaccination is not yet disseminated for how do we combat that issue i mean it's actually not complicated so first of all if everyone around the kids is vaccinated Mm -hmm. the kids are going to have an incredibly low light it's not zero but they'll have a much lower likelihood of getting COVID. so that's Mm -hmm. the first and foremost, most effective measure to protect. And then beyond it, it's the measures I just told you. If if there's good ventilation in the classroom, kids are wearing masks. Like there's that salon example where the, you know, the barber had COVID, but she was wearing a mask and all of her clients were wearing a mask. Almost nobody or one person, like there was almost no transmissions. And then there are examples of salons where they had COVID and were wearing masks and then everyone got it. Same with schools, right? So it all goes back to the layered protection. And if we do that layered protection, the kids will largely be okay. Yeah. You know, it's just when we have these breakdowns in certain states where they're not letting schools protect kids in the ways that they want to, that it gets a little murky. And I always remind parents, yes, masks work best when everybody's wearing a mask, Mm -hmm. but kids do get some protection, even if they're the only person wearing the mask. So, Mm -hmm. you know, 
if they wear a normal cloth mask mm-hmm. and no one else is uh, like a two ply at least ideally three ply cloth mask they're going to have anywhere from like 50 to 70 percent protection likely more in the 50 percent range because no kid is generally wearing a mask perfectly right. Yeah. But are remarkably good at it. And then if every obviously if everyone's wearing a mask and if they yeah. all right, let me go through the mask. So normal cloth, like 50 to 70. If they're wearing a surgical mask, it's a little higher than that. And if they're wearing one of the KN95, KN F K and they I mean they're if they actually wear it properly, they're mm-hmm. like 98, 99. So that's actually my general suggestion for parents that if their kids are in a school where they don't have mask mandates, and their kids will actually wear the mm-hmm. K95 or KF94s, mm-hmm. I recommend those if they're nervous, because, yeah. uh, you know, they're a great alternative, they're much more comfortable, as you know, being a nurse, like they're much more comfortable yeah. than normal N95 yeah. wear. I mean, it's just also sad to see like how some states have allowed children to resume in-person classes with no mandate oh, whatsoever. <laughs> and it's, it's yeah, insanity. It's yeah. um, and I think it's it's not only is it insanity, but the, I think the saddest part about it is that because there were highly respected physicians. Yeah. And granted, this was pre-Delta that they were saying this, but even post-Delta, they're still yeah. The efficacy of masks yeah. that degrades trust and they keep saying and i did a whole post on this recently yeah. Yeah. we need to do a study of kids and masks well first of all we have the data now because yeah. Yeah. opened without masks yeah. Yeah. unfortunately yeah. we have the data yeah. but yeah. they keep saying well there's been no randomized controlled trials so <laughs> don't know if they're effective i mean that's just absolute nonsense yeah. like yeah. it's physics we yeah. need yeah. masks work yeah. Yeah. And kids are wearing them remarkably <clears throat> well. And that is why no pediatrician is saying this because we see the kids wearing yeah. them. It's the adult doctors that have no like mm-hmm. interaction with these younger kids that think, oh, they can't possibly wear yeah. them. You know what? Yeah. They can and they are. Yeah. And it's very funny too how most of the misinformation about what's going on inside the hospital, inside the ICUs, are made by those who are not even working in those units, right? Yeah. Um, so as someone who's working firsthand, face-to-face in the pediatric ICU, what have you seen either the past few months or the past few weeks with the rise of Delta? Or, and this has been a big question in my DMs when I started promoting our live dog, it, are children really getting sick critically because of COVID-19 itself? Yes, yeah. they are. So, so they are. For the most part, and this is the good news, good news for some, I guess, is that for the most part, the kids that are getting COVID, getting intubated, etc., those are unfortunately largely, you know, minorities who are obese. Mm-hmm. Obesity across the board across mm-hmm. every peds ICU seems to be the number one risk factor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we are seeing kids getting sick, sick, mm-hmm. sick with COVID. Now, also have a cohort of previously healthy kids that are getting sick and intubated with COVID. But I will say the caveat because that started to scare me, obviously, is having a 17-month-old. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, yeah. 
like not because by any means yeah. immune, but I was like, she gets it. She'll probably be okay. However, the kids that are previously healthy and ending up intubated with COVID, for the most part, not everyone, but for mm-hmm. the large majority, they have also other viruses along yeah. with COVID. Yeah. So COVID, RSV, rhino. Mm-hmm. We know pre-COVID, the yeah. normal yeah. virus are already yeah get a normal yeah. kid. that's not new so that's kind of the landscape i will say also our uncontrolled asthmatics being admitted more with covid this is i just want to touch upon the asthma component because it's the mm-hmm. most common question i mm-hmm. get my kid has asthma are they increased risk it's really important to know that if you have well-controlled asthma as a yeah. kid, you are not at increased risk yeah. of covid it's yeah. only the uncontrolled asthmatic And that's why I tell all my asthma parents, make sure you are actually going and seeing your pulmonologist, your lung doctor, make sure that, you know, I know everyone's been scared throughout the pandemic. I actually think those cases are the ones that absolutely do to make sure if they need a controller med, they get their controller meds and they're on top of their asthma because if they are, they'll, they'll be okay. And, you know, we have had a minority of kids under like one year and below that also get sick with COVID. But for the most part, those kids do end up in the ICU, but they end up mm-hmm. on flow. Again, mm-hmm. if they have other viruses along with COVID in general, mm-hmm. they don't get intubated. And we have just because you asked, we have absolutely an increase in cases, I would mm-hmm. say my ICU right now is 10 to 20% COVID, which is a lot. It's a lot. We're basically back to our peak, I guess, when was the last peak in January? So we're kind of back there. And now we're unfortunately also seeing multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids. And, and it's happening now because that happens three to six weeks after an initial infection. <laughs> So we suddenly are seeing an uptick in MISC too. And what I will say about MISC, that is not attacking kids with comorbidities. It is specifically, we've seen it almost solely in healthy kids who are like nine and 10 up Mm -hmm. to like 16. We're Mm -hmm. seeing it in those kids. They're almost all previously healthy. And Mm -hmm. those kids get really, really sick. Now, Mm -hmm. fortunately, We know exactly how to treat them. It's like we know it. We can smell it. The second they step in the door, we have a series of lab tests we do and imaging. And Mm -hmm. very fortunately for us, it's easy to diagnose and we have good treatments for it. So although they get very, 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 very sick very quickly, Mm -hmm. they recover too quite Mm -hmm. quickly. But those kids end up, I've had some with breathing tubes. I've had almost all of them get central lines, arterial lines, you know, they get all the support. But again, we have not lost one of those in our ICU. But we also have seen so many that we have a really high index of suspicion for them. So we get them treated really early. So that's kind of the link of what we're seeing right now. How does that affect all of you as, you know, the physician of these children? And I always say that pediatricians or all those who are working in pediatrics, your patient is not just the kid in the bed, right? It's the parents also. No, I have more time with families than I honestly, you end up... Yeah. How do you juggle that emotionally, I guess? And I feel like it's so heartbreaking to see these children suffer even prior to the pandemic or even prior to COVID-19, those children who are already in the PICU. As the physician of these children, how do you manage that in your heart and in your mind, seeing these children sick who have this whole life ahead of them and these parents asking you, what's wrong with my child? 
I will tell you that that always depends on the case. I mean, every case is heartbreaking, but you learn over time to accept, even though it's sad in the moment, I've learned Mm -hmm. to get personal satisfaction from giving those kids who don't survive a really honorable and respectful and comfortable death. And that's how I, I realized that my care for those sort of fun, like really great saves is just as important as ushering and guiding families to either withdraw care, drawing, mm-hmm. you know, when they end up dying. So that's how I kind of combat the feeling of hopelessness, because it's not hopeless. You know, there always comes a point where there isn't in some cases where there's nothing left to do. And that's when honestly, the real work comes in when you are with that family, and you ha- you know that you are with that family during the worst moment of their life. And it's your job to make that worst moment is I don't know, for lack of a better word, like as good or as memorable in a good way as possible. And we do these really nice things like memory boxes and things like that for parents where they get to do like fingerprints, hair locks, handprints. I often will do them with the family if they will ask them them, do you want me to do it with you? You know, just if they want that support. So I, you know, I think participating in that sort of, and I also something I I do sometimes as well, particularly in Mm -hmm. instances where I've gotten incredibly close with them and the family Mm -hmm. is I'll help the nurses when they're cleaning up the child after Mm -hmm. they Died, and I just find I don't know why, but like it just it gives me some closure, and I think that's something that I didn't realize I needed mm-hmm. uh, even a couple years ago. Doing that with the nurses and like sort of mm. that ceremony of like washing them and everything um, also helped me to get closure mm. with those children and say goodbye. I think I didn't realize how important it was for me to say goodbye to the patients. One of my yoga teachers actually told me that they're like, you need to say goodbye to each of your patients you lose. And Mm. I never really thought about that. But I do Mm. that. now. And so those cases I emotionally and mentally can handle the cases. Mm. I, I I mean, I, I am able to live my life and be okay. But that do I do take home are the preventable cases like the horrific child abuse cases like that didn't need to happen. That's another reason why kids need to go back to school. The rate mm-hmm. of child abuse has gone so high. Mm-hmm. Because, and I, you know, in, in some ways, I can't even blame the families because they have zero social support, yeah. zero economic support. They are mm-hmm. at their wits end. And I mean, not that I would ever condone touching a child, but mm-hmm. you can almost see that these families are, you know, this, that doesn't happen unless something is going on. So those cases are enormously hard, especially because I have to like interact with often the perpetrator. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, now the COVID mm-hmm. cases kill me because I see every pediatric COVID case as a preventable illness. Yeah. Yeah, I lost a patient. I mean, it took me, I think I'm still recovering from that when I lost a patient just to COVID. Like he didn't have, I mean, he had a comorbidities, but he passed Mm -hmm. away from COVID. And that family in particular was just so sad. Like the the whole family had COVID. So I was calling Mm -hmm. the mom in the ICU. She was in the ICU telling her Mm -hmm. her son had passed. And the dad was there in the room, but he had COVID and was sick. Five mm-hmm. siblings all had COVID. You know, it was just like, how do you, how, how do you, I just, it was just awful. And they were, of course, were the loveliest family, you know, it's like mm-hmm. my father, the absolute yeah. 
most amazing family. So, you know, those cases that also, honestly, that made me go also headfirst into education. It's like, to answer your question, how do I deal with those cases that Mm -hmm. get me inside, like emotionally, funnel the anger into action. And for me, my action, when I get mad about all these Mm -hmm. cases, I'm like, all right, what am I going to educate today? Or am I going to let me do story questions and things like that, just so that I can move that frustration and anger and thing useful and my mental health even though I'm like 10 times busier and sleeping less because of all the education I am much happier yeah yeah so what's your prognosis for all of this as a closing question for this topic of COVID-19 pediatrics where do you see this going, I think I think a common question that everyone is asking, but especially parents in relation to this is, will it ever end? Yes, I think there's a nuanced answer to that. Mm-hmm. Will life as it is now mm-hmm. and go back to some semblance of normal? Yes. Will mm-hmm. COVID go away? No, it will not. The, yeah. This is going to be a disease now, right? Yeah. It's going to be yeah. part of our lives forever. Yeah. But the difference is, is that we have a vaccine for it. So there is an end point. The second my daughter is vaccinated, I will be able to breathe fully, right? Because even if she's around a ton of COVID, even if she gets, you know, and I keep saying COVID, let me be more specific. You know, if she's exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and God forbid she gets COVID, she's vaccinated. She's not going to get sick. Probably going to have a common cold. So I think that's what's important to remember and I think this is a piece that is really missing. And I'm trying to figure out way. I feel like I keep trying to explain it. And I know other doctors are too. But obviously, it's not getting to everybody that if you are vaccinated, and then get COVID and have just a common cold symptom, that is a success, right? The whole point is you got it, and your body fought it off, and you didn't end up in the hospital or death. Mm-hmm. So Mm-hmm. If everyone who is eligible to get vaccinated gets vaccinated, and if people opt not to at that point, that's their decision, right? But like, mm-hmm. if everyone who's eligible and has offered the vaccine has had the opportunity to take it, mm-hmm. I think at that point, our world, our, at least our country, can go back to some semblance of normalcy. I mean, kids, though, I do believe in vaccine mm-hmm. mandates for kids, but that's been around for decades, right? Yeah. <laughs> bunch of vaccines. So that's not new. But as long as we get all of our kids vaccinated and all the adults that want to get vaccinated vaccinated, I do see a way out. But I will tell you this, I don't see a way out until we get the whole world vaccinated, which I to be honest with you, I'm actually staunchly against this booster camp. I'm not against the booster campaign for immunocompromised. Yeah, yeah. And elderly who have Mm -hmm. immunity. (laughs) I am absolutely against it for like the rest of the country. Because if we don't get the rest of the world back, yeah, send it over to the rest of the world, right? Will not end. Then this will, yeah. right? Because yeah. there will be a variant, and there already is a variant, right? The mutant variant that mm-hmm. is going to outsmart our vaccination. Yeah. So, yeah. do I think that there is a, a an end to this? Yes. Yeah. When that end is going to happen is going to depend on when you know rich countries like ours. Yeah. And they keep saying they're going to do it, but then they send it when it's about to expire, and that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when our country actually makes a concerted effort, and Biden did say he was going to, to get the world vaccinated, then that's going to be the end point. But to say that we're not going to say goodbye to COVID, though, and I think it's important for people to know that. 
and it's yeah. why you need to get vaccinated, right? I agree. We've talked a lot of about a lot of heavy topics today, and so many interesting topics and topics that people want to hear. Through all of this, you know, seeing agony in children and the family, and I know you talked about yoga as your means of decompression. How is the life outside of work? How do you decompress? from work like after such a heavy shift how do you decompress once you get home well i basically have a routine i like run home as fast as i can (laughs) i'm with my daughter and i mean i spend every second i don't even think about work while i'm with her i really Mm -hmm. put it to like well first i shower and then i spend time with my daughter (laughs) husband we always eat dinner together Mm-hmm. And I generally work out in the morning. So working out regularly, incredibly, like, is like either the Peloton, yoga. I run with my daughter and with a running stroller. So running, spending time, or, you know, any exercise, spending time with my daughter and my family. And then my husband and I are purveyors of trash. <laughs> <laughs> so we love The Bachelor. We love the idea. <laughs> A Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. You know what? Watch some dumb TV. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And I own it and I am fine with it because you know what? I go through so much at work, but I think it's important to just like... The amount of doctors who watch The Bachelor really amazes me. It is so funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like all white co-work and then you watch, you watch this... <laughs> I don't know how. And honestly, like, I watch it and think, like, or anything. I'm just, like, it's like watching a train wreck. (laughs) You just can't stop watching. Also, one other thing I do do is I really love healthy baking. Like, that's, like, kind of a side passion of mine. Mm. So you can see some back there. That's, like, like 1% of the number of plants I have. (laughs) So healthy baking, like really easy, healthy baking and plants are also like passions of mine. And that's one thing I will say that gets me through every hard day is remembering I used to just be a doctor, just mm-hmm. be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I really realized that I actually am so much of a better doctor. I am a more productive researcher. I am just more productive in life when I actually devote time to my home life and my home passion. Yeah. And that's what has sustained me. Yeah, that, that's what sustains me. And that what sustains me. I mean, I had honestly the hardest week of my entire career a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Without, I mean, without a doubt. And mm. yeah, that's what I did. I just made sure I spent time with my husband and my kid. And I took help from my parents. My parents are local. So I am much better at accepting help as well yeah. because I know I can't do all these things if I don't have help. And that has all really helped me to get through that. Yeah. yeah. And this is an amazing message of how much self-care is so vital, right? Especially for such a stressful job in healthcare. Yeah. Right? And I know you're super busy and you graced me with your time and oh, press today. I appreciate you talk. I mean, this was so fun and I'm so sorry. No, me. it's okay, dog. It's okay. I, I, I literally was just like, my, my, my eyes flashed before me and I was like, did I, did I wake <laughs> up a day late? <laughs> I was like, is it, is it, is it, 
the way. And like my, some of my friends are like, "How are you a doctor?" How are you like working and like doing all this research when you are like a bobblehead? It happens. It's the best. But Dr. Patel, thank you so much for being with me today. I had so much fun and learned a lot. Thank you for doing this. This is really wonderful. And you're, I, I cannot wait until you're here. <laughs> and as I told you already, you let me know if you need anything. I mean, yeah. I really do. You're going to be great. You're going to be amazing. Honestly, nurses make the best doctors. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Patel. I hope you have a great day. You too. Uh, All right. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you.